0: and I don't think any of us ever thought it was possible, is a serious argument that state legislatures should ignore the will of the voters and choose another candidate. That's a true threat to democracy.
1: This is Robert Pease, and that's our special guest today on The Purple Principle, Trevor Potter, president of the Campaign Legal Center.
0: And I don't think we can count on being lucky next time that the election will be wide enough in terms of the margin to avoid the sort of threat that we've seen here this year to the system and the will of the voters.
2: And I'm Emily Cursetti. And Trevor Potter might be familiar to you from a number of important positions, such as the chairman of the Federal Election Commission from 1991 to 1995. We'll hear from him on how close to a constitutional crisis we came in the 2020 election.
1: And Trevor may also be familiar to you as general counsel for John McCain's two presidential campaigns in the years 2000 and 2008. We'll hear from him about one of our nation's most independent-minded politicians who passed away in 2018.
2: And in 2020, McCain's own purple state of Arizona swung against a Republican presidential candidate for the first time since 1996.
1: But Trevor's voice may be familiar to you from yet another high profile, if satirical position.
2: As the legal advisor to Stephen Colbert's Super PAC, which he formed live on this episode of Comedy Central's Colbert Report in 2011. I have clearly got to get a PAC, but again, I have no idea what PACs do. Here to tell us what they do is the former chairman of the Federal Election Commission and general counsel for the McCain Campaign 08, Trevor Potter. Thank you so much for joining us, Mr. Potter. Okay, sir.
1: I'm all set here. Okay. Okay, sir. Let's start with some basics here. What is a PAC?
2: Currently, though, Trevor Potter is the president of the Campaign Legal Center, or CLC. The goal of this nonpartisan nonprofit is, quote, advancing democracy through law. And that includes working to stop the polarizing effects of gerrymandering.
1: Which is a tricky subject, but you've probably seen those highly creative maps that result from gerrymandering with the random shapes and sizes of federal and state congressional districts.
2: And those are not random at all. They're highly deliberate and the result of gerrymandering which is the creation of unbalanced electoral districts by partisan legislatures to maximize seats for their own party.
1: In other words, the fox guarding the chicken coop, and both parties have been guilty of this for centuries but have become way more effective lately with the rise of big data.
2: Gerrymandering is kind of like wanting to start up a great band and all kinds of talent shows up to the audition keyboard players, guitarists, bass players, drummers. But the music director selects the worst guitarist.
1: And that's about what we hear from Washington and many state capitals these days. Lots of harsh noise, very little legislation, and everyone suffers as a result.
2: So let's learn a bit more about gerrymandering from Trevor Potter, president of CLC, the Campaign Legal Center.
0: Well, gerrymandering is a real problem because it means that whichever party is in power when the districts are drawn, which is every 10 years after our census, that party draws lines in a way that maximizes their number of seats, either in the legislature or in the congressional delegation, and minimizes the number of seats for the other party. They do that by packing as many members of the supporters, voters of the other party, into the smallest number of districts that they can. So that party wins those districts overwhelmingly. But then the party in power wins a lot more districts than it normally would. Now, in terms of polarization, what that does is it means that people are in districts that are safe for their party. So the only challenge they're going to get is in a party primary. And what tends to happen in both the Democratic and Republican parties is that the energy comes from the base, from the more active members of the party who are the ones likely to vote in primaries. And generally, they tend to be on the more extreme side of their party. So in the Republican world, it's the more conservative Republicans. And on the Democratic side, it tends to be the more liberal progressive members who come out in primaries. You then lock in more extreme Republicans, and more extreme Democrats. So it makes it much harder to have any sort of moderate compromises in the middle because members of the legislature or members of the House are concerned about getting challenged if they try to reach out to the other side.
1: And that is a huge issue. But it seems currently there's only about 10 states with independent commissions Has it been about that number for a while, or has there been some up and down on that?
0: No, I think that's about right. There are more independent commissions than there used to be. It used to be that districting was simply done by state legislatures. Independent commissions are a relatively new phenomenon, but it still wasn't as bad as it is now because what I would call the science of redistricting was nowhere near as powerful as it is today. Going back to the word gerrymandering, which comes from Massachusetts uh, Governor Elbridge Gerry, he was using a quill pen and a map. Today, uh, the census maps and the demographic material is so precise that somebody drawing a map knows literally which houses on the block have one registered Republican or two registered Republicans, and the same, obviously, for Democrats. So somebody drawing these lines can very precisely measure, based on party registration and all the other demographic data that's available, what magazines people subscribe to, all these overlays of information that tell you something about voters and their preferences. So as they say, this is not your your father's or grandfather's gerrymandering.
1: That's for sure. And it's great that Virginia passed that. But at the same time, it looks like Missouri actually took a step backwards recently. How is it in some states you can create an independent commission with some stability and another state like Missouri in this case can essentially rescind that commission?
0: So both of these, Virginia and Missouri, are good examples of how difficult it is to overcome partisanship. Virginia had a Republican legislature a couple years ago. The Democrats did not have the legislature either house. And so they pushed for an independent redistricting commission process. And all the Democrats voted for it and they got just enough Republicans to vote for it to pass it the first time in the Virginia legislature. Then, still under the old lines, we had an election in Virginia and the Democrats took control of the legislature. So it comes back up for the second vote in the next session of the legislature as required. And lo and behold, the Democrats suddenly find that this is a poor proposal that it isn't very well written, that it's confusing, that it isn't as independent as they would like it to be. All of a sudden, the Republicans, who almost all of whom had opposed it, are in favor of it because they've lost power in the legislature. They're not going to be able to draw the lines, and they would rather have an independent commission than the Democrats doing the line drawing. And I thought the Democratic Party attacks on it might be effective because most Virginians didn't know the details. And when they went to the polls, there was an official Democratic Party flyer that urged a no vote on this. It still passed 66%. Uh, And I think the lesson from that is that when voters are told that what they're voting on will make the system less partisan, they are in favor of it. And in that sense, redistricting commissions have not lost anywhere in the country when voters have actually had a chance to pass them. So that leads to Missouri, the other state you mentioned. And what happened there is there was a initiative two years ago to have an independent commission and it passed as they tend to across the country. And the Republican legislature did not like it because it was going to take power away from them, to uh, draw these lines in 2021, so they did something very clever, which is they came up with a initiative of their own, which they got qualified for the ballot, and what it claimed is that it would improve the independent commission. Now, in the details, it significantly weakened it. It gave the legislature the right to override it. It essentially gutted the independent commission that the voters had approved. And so effectively, the Republicans and the legislature were able to take back control over the process by pulling the wool over the voters' eyes.
1: And Emily, as we know all too well from other interviews, other episodes, politicians can be really clever with their wool-pulling techniques.
2: Absolutely, which is why so many independent voters have a problem with partisan politics. I'm thinking about our 40 Million Missing episode and how John Opdyke of Open Primaries describes that viewpoint.
1: I think independents are saying loud and clear they do not like party politics, and independents have real criticisms of party politics and how it operates not just the candidates but the culture
2: of it the way in which it turns every issue into a political football and i'm thinking that independent citizens and representatives who aren't playing that political football can really play a vital role on these voting commissions almost like a nonpartisan referee
1: yep that's exactly what we need a lot more whistleblowing and red flags on gerrymandering and all kinds of other political offenses and in that same episode, I love how independent Vermont legislator Laura Sibelia sums up her platform.
2: I don't have a platform. In fact, it I like I basically refuse to have a platform. My platform is I'm going to look at that and understand it and, you know, ask all kinds of questions and, you know, then vote the way that I think is best. So that's a disadvantage in some ways and an advantage to being an independent. So you don't get the, you don't get fed from the party.
1: She'd be great on an independent commission. And we're about to hear from Trevor Potter how the action has moved down to the state level, including state ballot measures and legal battles. And that's largely because of a major change at the Supreme Court.
0: Jurisprudence here is changing as the United States Supreme Court has got a stronger conservative majority. A feature of its conservatism is that it wants to keep the federal courts out of state redistricting decisions. I think that's unfortunate and it requires the Supreme Court to do some contortions because the court held now about 15 years ago, that gerrymandering was in fact wrong, that it violated the U.S. Constitution because it denied people the representation they would have under a fair system. And this culminated in a case out of Wisconsin, which Paul Smith of Campaign Legal Center argued in the Supreme Court and and the Campaign Legal Center had done the, the trial in the district court. And there was, I think it's safe to say, overwhelming physical evidence, map evidence, oral testimony that this was an intentional gerrymander. The court subpoenaed the computer records of the, in Wisconsin, it was a Republican gerrymander. So they subpoenaed the computers of the Republican experts who had drawn these maps. And what they found was that they had done some 700 maps and chose the one that was the most partisan to then adopt as theirs and vote through the legislature. So that got to the Supreme Court and Justice Kennedy, who we didn't know what was, it turns out, about to retire, punted. And Justice Kavanaugh then joined the court majority in the next case that came up out of North Carolina and Here, the court 5-4 simply drew the line and said, these are not cases that federal courts can decide. There is no evidence that there is a test, that we know how to do this, that we will be able to tell the difference between too much gerrymandering and an acceptable amount. That's despite the fact that all of these lower federal courts and circuit courts had proven to the contrary. They had come in done these trials, produced the evidence, and concluded that they could determine when gerrymandering had occurred. The North Carolina one was particularly egregious because in the court testimony and in the public statements, the legislator who had drawn these lines was asked why he had drawn 10 Republican seats and three Democratic seats in the state of North Carolina, which is roughly a 50-50 state. And he responded that he had tried really hard, but could not find a way to draw 11 Republican seats and two Democratic seats. So the net effect of all of that is that cases may no longer be brought in federal court saying that the U.S. Constitution has been violated by this state gerrymandering. That still leaves open the possibility of bringing cases in state court, saying that state constitutions have been violated.
1: So there'll be a lot of court activity at the state level. Is it impossible for Congress to pass some kind of federal law to limit gerrymandering at the state level?
0: Ah, great question, because the answer is... That is certainly constitutionally possible. The U.S. Constitution says that the states shall draw the House districts and determine the time, place, and manner of elections. But it says unless Congress states otherwise. So the United States Congress could pass a law saying that every state must have an independent redistricting commission. And that would be valid, certainly for congressional line drawing. The problem with that is that in order to be a law, it has to be passed by both the House and the Senate and signed by the president. And the House has passed a bill that would say exactly that, But the Senate has not taken it up in the current Congress. And that's because, going back to the partisan issue, the Democrats have favored independent commissions for federal elections because they think there are more states that gerrymander in favor of Republicans than the other way. Both parties do it, to be clear. But the Republicans have bigger states and bigger gerrymanders generally. And therefore, the Senate Republicans, led by Senator McConnell, have refused to bring that
1: up. And I guess there's an interesting little irony there because it doesn't really affect Senate elections at all, and yet they're the ones preventing Congress from moving ahead.
0: That's an entirely true.
2: So it seems gerrymandering was never easy to combat, and now it's even more difficult since the Supreme Court has decided that it's a state-level issue.
1: Absolutely true, and in state after state, common-sense voters want independent commissions, but legislatures have ways of walking back these successful ballot measures, as was the case in Missouri and North Dakota.
2: And plus, it's impossible to get federal legislation if the Senate majority refuses to take up the issue.
1: So it might seem like there's not a lot of hope here, but as with many committed groups we've spoken to, like Open Primaries, Unite America, FairVote, IndependentVoting.org, and others, Trevor Potter and the CLC continue the fight with every available means. I asked him about CLC priorities in the wake of the 2020 election.
0: Well, one of them, despite it not being an easy task, is still going to be the redistricting next year, because we do think there are opportunities in a number of states to argue that a gerrymander, if that's what the legislature does, violates that state constitution. There are some states that do not have independent commissions yet, but there is a way for citizens to put initiatives on the ballot. And we will be working in those states with local groups to help word those propositions and then inevitably defend them in court. Beyond that, our agenda is a nonpartisan agenda to ensure that voters are able to vote. We spent a lot of time this year uh, in the middle of the pandemic, trying to ensure that voters could vote absentee if they wanted to or felt it was safer to do so. And so those are things that I think we know ended up working pretty well this year. I think the figures are about 60 to 65 million voted absentees. So on paper, either by mail or delivery, and the others early voting. And that's out of uh, the 160 million who voted. So a clear majority liked having the ability to vote in some way other than in person on election day.
1: Well, Trevor, as you know, most of our listeners at the Purple Principle are registered independent or unaffiliated voters. It seems like there's a recognition on these commissions that an independent has an important role to play. When did that first become recognized, and is that recognition increasing?
0: I think it is increasing as I part of the independent commission movement uh, is that you have a question, are these nonpartisan or are they bipartisan? Uh, And of course, the very notion of bipartisanship goes against what you're talking about, because it presumes that the world is divided into Democrats and Republicans. And so those sorts of commissions may have seven Republicans, seven Democrats, and one independent tie-breaking vote. But the country, certainly in terms of voter registration, as you point out, has a very large number of people who say they're independents, they don't automatically want to be affiliated with one party or the other. And so I think we're seeing a push to find ways for independents to participate in a system that is legally dominated by the two major parties. And so one of the areas that we have been interested in is ranked choice voting, RCV, which has been adopted by a range of cities across the country, More recently it was adopted in the state of Maine. In this last election, a version of it, the top four with ranked choice voting was adopted in Alaska. That was a reform that passed in the state of Alaska. As you know, it was not adopted in Massachusetts. It was on the ballot and defeated. But the idea there is to enable independents to run without being spoilers, because what we know is that generally, if you have a Republican candidate, a Democratic candidate, and an independent, what happens in voters' minds is they say, well, it's going to come down to the two major parties, so I'd better shift. The idea of ranked choice voting is you don't have to shift. You can still vote for the candidate you like the best. And your vote will not be wasted because if that candidate comes in third or fourth, then you have had a chance on the ballot to say my first choice is the independent and that's who I want to vote for. But if they don't finish in the top two, then I want my vote to go to this other candidate who might be the Democrat or the Republican, likely will be, so that it means that it is easier for an independent to run and have people support them because they don't feel that their votes are likely to be wasted.
1: And you mentioned there the Alaska case. That was a very ambitious ballot initiative with open primaries, rank-choice voting, and campaign finance transparency all rolled into one ballot measure. Before those results came in, what was your feeling about that? Did you think it had a chance of passing, or did it seem like it might be too much at one time?
0: You know, I... I'm always optimistic when these initiatives get to voters and when they're explained in a way that voters know what the real issues are here. You find even in very conservative states that voters like ethics reform, disclosure, and ways to ease participation in the system. We saw this uh, two years ago in the Dakotas where an initiative passed that would have significantly changed the process. And there, the uh, legislature actually went into emergency session under the state constitution to undo what the citizens had just done, because it turned out one of the ethics reforms would have meant most of them couldn't have jobs with companies that lobbied the legislature, as well as being legislators themselves. And so that particular reform hit the legislators in the pocketbook, and and they went rushing to the Capitol to undo it. But the voters passed it in a conservative state.
1: Well, let's go back to Alaska for another moment, not as conservative a state, maybe more of a purple state, but their ballot measure also included campaign finance transparency. And in the wake of the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, it seems limitations on finance are more difficult such as the McCain-Feingold bill you had some involvement with. Does that mean that today campaign finance disclosure is about the best we can hope for?
0: Actually, I I think uh, transparency is really important and we have significant dangers in the failure of disclosure that we currently have. Citizens United, at its heart, simply said that corporations have the same rights that individuals do to make independent spending that is not coordinated with candidates. And then Citizens United went on to say, however, that spending must be fully disclosed so that voters know know, who is paying to influence them. And that's the transparency we don't have. And it is clearly constitutional to require that transparency.
1: So Emily, a lot of ground covered there about efforts to combat polarization, including CLC's work on campaign finance reform, as well as independent commissions to prevent gerrymandering.
2: And making it easier for citizens to vote, which was hugely important during the 2020 election.
1: Plus initiatives to promote ranked choice voting, which was on the ballot in Alaska this year, ballot measure two. We covered this more fully in episode 13, Declaration of Independence Alaska style, Here's a bit of that.
2: And Alaska is a different kind of state in many ways. It's dependent on ferry transportation, prop planes, and all kinds of snow machines. Alaska is different politically, too. Nearly 57% of Alaskans do not register for one of the two major parties.
1: Which might explain why Alaska was the most recent state to have an independent governor, Bill Walker. We talk about the
0: bipartisanship, uh, having a bipartisan administration. We'll have a no-partisan administration.
1: But what makes Alaska so intriguing this year is that non-partisanship is on the ballot.
2: And right now, it's early December 2020. And as you record this episode, it does appear that Alaska Ballot Measure 2 has narrowly passed in our nation's most indie-minded state but it's currently under official recount and it remains to be seen how the new legislature will react.
1: Speaking of election recounts, I asked Trevor Potter for his thoughts on our contentious 2020 presidential election, even as disinformation swirls around the results and the Electoral College hasn't yet met to officially confirm Joe Biden as the next president. So Trevor, you are highly involved in two presidential campaigns by John McCain as his chief counsel. Are we in totally new territory here in 2020? It seemed in this election there was a strategy formed in advance to dispute the result. And to the outsider, that seems very different from what happened in the year 2000 with the very close Bush-Gore election. I think it's
0: different than what we have ever seen in a presidential election, certainly in what I'd call living memory To have a candidate claim before a single vote has been cast that the election is being stolen and that the way 60 million Americans chose to vote, which is by absentee ballots, was somehow fraudulent and that those ballots were illegitimate is just extraordinary. And I'm almost speechless because... It is not true that those are fraudulent votes. They are just as legal as votes cast in person. They're on paper. They can be reviewed. The Republican Party has traditionally spent literally millions of dollars encouraging its loyal voters to vote absentee, to vote ahead of the election. And so they would go to states with big retiree populations like Arizona and Florida, California, and they would mail registered Republican voters applications for absentee ballots and follow up with them and call them and say, have you sent them in? And then if they got sick, they didn't feel well, it was raining, they didn't have to worry about turnout. Because they had already turned out. They had banked those ballots. And so that was a a traditional Republican approach. And at that stage, the Republicans weren't talking about fraud and absentee ballots. But as you pointed out in your question, what the president did was set up a scenario where if he didn't win, he had already told everyone that it was because of what he claimed was these fraudulent absentee votes.
1: Right. So for our listeners who are concerned about the health of democracy, uh, this has been a bit of a roller coaster since the election day itself. Maybe it's reassuring. A lot of these court cases have been decided rather quickly and decisively but it still seems like there were some dangerous moments where there was so much pressure on secretaries of state, such as in Georgia, and on certifying commissions. At times, it almost seemed like this is a strategy that could work. Does that mean we need more reforms?
0: I think we dodged a bullet this year. If the election had been closer, if instead of an apparent 306 electoral votes, Biden had 270, which was mathematically possible, the bare number he needed, or let's say, you know, even 280. But any one of these states could have been pushed to move its electoral votes from Biden to Trump, changing the result of the outcome of the Electoral College. That's incredibly dangerous for our system of direct democracy, of electing a president through the states because every state law says that whoever wins the most votes in that state is entitled to the electoral votes. And this year, the system held, meaning not that one candidate or another won, but that the election officials were able to tell us who got the most votes in each state with certainty and accuracy. And the electors are all lined up to go for the candidate who won the most votes in those states. But what we saw, and I don't think any of us ever thought it was possible, is a serious argument that state legislatures should ignore the will of the voters and choose another candidate. That's a, a true threat to democracy. And, and I think as we look ahead, uh, I don't think we can count on being lucky next time that the election whoever's ahead, that the election will be wide enough in terms of the margin to avoid the sort of uh, threat that we've seen here this year to the the system and, and the will of the, of the voters. So I think we do need to take a look at what can be done to improve the election system so that there are fewer questions about it, make it easy to vote as we've, done this year, but also make sure that vote is secure, that the correct checks are in place on absentee voting, that ideally states are counting absentee votings and pre-processing them so that results are coming out at the same time. And then I think we need to take a look at the Electoral College. In particular, I'm thinking of the so-called faithless elector. That's a relic of 200 years ago when electors were supposed to exercise their own judgment. And now that's not how our system works. The voters have exercised the judgment. The electors are simply the vehicle by which the voters' judgment is carried out. And the Supreme Court has said that states may bind electors and require them to vote for the winner of the popular vote certified by the state and can indeed replace them if they don't, so that you can ensure that the state's votes go according to state law. Interestingly, only 14 of our 50 states currently go that far and say, you must vote for the certified winner in the state, and if you don't, you will be replaced. So a small, but I think important reform would be to have 50 states say, you must vote for the winner or you will be replaced. That would at least make people sleep sounder if you have a very close election.
1: But absent some of those reforms, is it fair to say we might see more elections like 2020 in the future and less like the year 2000 when things were resolved in a procedural way?
0: I worry about that. I think the you know once you've opened Pandora's box, it's hard to close it. And Pandora's box here is refusing to accept recounts and going to court to argue that the courts should throw out huge numbers of ballots to get a different result or to change the election from individual voters to a state legislature. Once you've made those arguments, uh, I think they're available for the next person to come along and use them unless we make some changes in in this process.
1: Okay, we briefly mentioned some of the secretaries of state and certifying commissions who were put under great pressure. Do you have a particular hero in this battle who really stood up under pressure and did the right thing?
0: Well, you know, I I think if you look across the country, that there were a number of officials who were really clear about how the system worked, what the security aspects were. and, And because of the partisan divide we had, I think here, the heroes are the Republicans who were willing to stand up and say, you know, we've taken a really close look at our state and our election, and there is no evidence of fraud. And and I say they're the heroes because obviously there are plenty of Democratic secretaries of state and Democratic officials who said the same thing, but they weren't standing up to pressure from their own party In law, there's extra credibility that is given to what's called an argument against self-interest, meaning that if you admit to something that you say something that may actually harm you, you're more likely to be believed. And so we saw literally across the country in Arizona, we had uh, canvassing officials who were loyal Republican Trump supporters going out of their way to explain why the election was legitimate and how they had counted the votes and how they had made sure that the machine tallies were accurate and had cross-checked them against paper ballots. You obviously saw it out of the Secretary of State in Georgia. You saw it out of Republican state board officials in Michigan. They could have gone the other way. They could have done what many of their fellow Republicans did, which is to try to stay quiet or to say, well, You know, the the president is entitled to bring challenges and not defend the integrity of the system.
1: And speaking of Republicans staying quiet, it's hard to imagine that John McCain would have been one of them. And you knew him quite well. What do you think he would have said and done in this situation?
0: Well, I've actually heard uh, Cindy McCain, Senator McCain's widow, say that she will never tell people what John would have done or would have said because, well, as she knew him, he was a wonderfully unpredictable fellow. So I'm not going to try to put words in his mouth. But I will say that in all my years with him, he absolutely never questioned the will of the voters in terms of thinking that he'd like a do-over, that he wasn't going to accept the results. There's a great line, and it's not McCain's line, which is the people have spoken, the bastards. But I think, you know, McCain, like other American politicians, accepted the results of elections, including the ones he lost. We all saw him give an incredibly gracious concession speech when he lost to Senator Obama for president in 2008. I can tell you, as his lawyer, he was very interested in making sure the election was legitimate.
1: That was our special guest today, Trevor Potter. He was general counsel to John McCain during his two presidential campaigns, as well as a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission. Currently, he's president of the nonpartisan campaign legal center.
2: And for listeners of my generation who might not know a lot about the John McCain, war hero, presidential candidate, active and pragmatic legislator in the House and Senate, there is a great new book out about him called The Luckiest Man by Mark Salter.
1: Next time on The Purple Principle, we'll take a close look at the rise of polarization between the two major parties, as well as uniquely different problems within them. Our featured guest will be historian and columnist Jeffrey Cabaservice, author of the seminal book Rule and Ruin. He's director of policy studies at the Washington think tank, the Niskanen Center.
2: I think this is actually a case where
0: the vast majority of the Republican Party is being loyal to the individual of Donald Trump rather than to the party as such, and The fear among Republican legislators certainly has been that if they were to come out and openly say that Trump has lost the election, that he should concede, that this would turn the party faithful against them and their political careers would be over. It's extraordinary, really, and I think largely unprecedented in American history, that Donald Trump has taken ownership of the Republican Party in this way, such that the party has no real independent existence outside of his candidacy and presidency.
1: Please join us for that episode. Share us on social media and share your purple tale at purpleprinciple.com. This is Robert Pease for the Purple Principal team. Emily Cressetti, staff reporter. Kevin A. Klein, audio engineer. Research and fact-checking by Emily Holloway and Johnny Dowling. Special thanks to our awesome composer Ryan Adair Rooney for the awful and very uncharacteristic guitar sound earlier in this episode. We made him do that.